Hi, everyone. Wow, you guys seem very solemn. You know, that song we just sang um, is, is really the very essence of what we are about as a people. It's what the Bible really centers everything on. I would, I would really appreciate it if you would turn with me to Romans, um, the third chapter. And I want you to look at verses 21, 22, 23, and 24. I know we took a look last week at verses 21 and 22. It really behooves us to go over these two verses just briefly again because I believe where we are right now is the high watermark in all of Scripture. I love you. I don't see you enough anymore. I love you very much. I know that. I know. It is the high watermark of what, what it, 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 everything that there, there is within the Scripture. Now, here's my problem, and I recognize it fully. I told the people in the first service. I say this too often, um, and it becomes almost watered down. There's very few things I want to water down about the Word of God, but uh, it seems like I always tell you this is one of the great places in the Scripture. Well, I believe that. And I guess it's because I study during the week that, it, that everything bubbles up. And I can, I can, I can almost see, if, forgive me if this sounds, um, I don't know, what's the word, bragging. I don't mean it in any fashion in that way. But it, it seems like it bubbles up that I can almost sense what Paul is trying to tell us. You see, what has taken place, let's, let's, let's really be clear. Paul has brought the people in Rome to their knees. I think even lower. I think he's laid them flat on the ground. He has showed them that there is absolutely no hope in their lives. That's what we learned from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 18. Paul condemned those people in Rome over their sin. And he placed them under the judgment, the very wrath of God, if you would. He told them that there were they were useless. You think not. Look what he says. Take a look in chapter 3. He says in verse 12, Today, together, he says, you have all turned aside. You have become useless. He says, you've become hopeless. He says in verse 10, there's none of you that are righteous. Not even one of you. Not one. And so consequently, he's saying, you're all damned. But no longer. This place in Scripture is a place that sets our hearts free. If by the grace of God... God is able to really minister to your soul this particular hour. You, I pray, will walk out of here more assured of who you are in Christ than ever before. And I believe that's exactly what Paul was trying to do to the people in Rome. And I believe that's what the Lord God is trying to do with all of us that choose to follow him. He wants us to feel assured at, at who we are in Christ. Today, what we are going to clearly see is the righteousness of God that will solve the dilemma between sin and God's perfect justice. Paul has argued that both Jew as well as Gentile, in other words, all mankind, is, is utterly hopeless without God's plan. And now Paul takes us to higher ground. In fact, I would, I would reason with you that this is the highest place in all of Scripture. Now, I, I believe there's other places. But for me right now, this is what happens when I study through these four verses. Read with me, please. 
in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul begins by saying, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Enough really said for this moment. Let's pray first. Father, please open up our eyes. Father, would you give us, Father, the the wonderful sense of who you are within our lives, that we would be more understanding than ever before of, of who we are because of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very one that you chose to allow to come to this earth, to live, and then to be nailed upon the cross and die. And then by the grace of an almighty God, rise from the dead three days later so as never to die again and to give all who would trust and believe in him everlasting life. Father, I think, I think at times we take that almost for granted. We hear it so often. You know, for, we know the verse, Father, for God so loved the world that that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in, in him would have everlasting life. We hear that, but do we really understand it? And so, Father, I believe Paul is trying to get the people in Rome to, to have nowhere to look but up. And once they do look up, Father, I believe his intention was to make them sense how wonderful it is to be a follower of yours. And so, Father, if I've not already said it, please open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And I beg of you, Father, move me aside. Allow us to hear from your heart to our own. Make these not just be words that I say every week, but, Father, a, a reality in all of our lives. I pray your blessings upon us. I pray your blessings upon us, Father. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. I don't. We're going to make an announcement at the end of this service, but I want to say to you: next week, because of a, the parade here in this in the community, we will not be able to have church here Saturday next week. But Sunday next week is our ninth anniversary, and Sunday next week is is going to be announced to you. We will be moving into uh, our temporarily permanent home at uh, the Bryant Ranch Elementary School. Um, uh, we will be meeting there on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. Then the following Saturday on the, I believe it's the 17th or the 16th, please forgive me, um, one of those, but on the following Saturday we will meet here at 5 o'clock for those that want to come to church on Saturday and can't come on Sunday morning. Now Dan's going to say all of this uh, in a moment, but uh, I just wanted to throw that in you. I believe you received a a flyer to tell you that, but um, enough of that. Let, let's let's talk about about just two words. Let's let's begin with two words. Harley, it's so good to see you back there. Are you feeling okay? Praise the Lord. Praise yes. Praise the Lord. Love you very much, my friend. 
Two words, verse 21. But now. You can't. Look, at if you're studying the Bible, you're reading the Bible, and you're enjoying reading through the Bible, when you come to words like but now, you really must stop. You, you really can't be reading the Bible in such a fashion that you just brush over these words and you don't think about it. Because what, what Paul is doing is saying, but now. In other words, but now what? But now what, Paul? Well, Paul is saying everything that I've said before, everything before hinges on these two words. Everything before now, but God. There is a change, but there is a dramatic change in this particular place in Scripture. He says, but now, mark these words well. They are the hinge that opens and swings open the door to peace with God. Peace with God like you have never experienced or, or perhaps have never thought of before. There is no greater dramatic change in all of Scripture than verse 21. It, from where we were in chapter 1 and verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 18. We have been condemned. We are without hope. There's no hope for us. There's none of us who is righteous, not even one. And Paul is saying you can't work your way to heaven. So what are we to do? But now, Paul writes... It indicates a contrast between our total depravity, our inability to please God in and of our own power to where God has a way. He has made a way for you and me to reach to Him. More importantly, from Him to us. We move from despair, as we saw from chapters 1 to 3, to where there is no hope for anyone. Remember, Chapter 3, verse 10, none of us are righteous. No, not one. And now we've come to the point where we receive the most wonderful grace and righteousness that has been given to a believer in God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You know it by heart, I'm sure. For by grace you and I have been saved through faith. And that not of ourself. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that none of us can boast. It is God's gift of grace through faith. And so I'm saying to you all along, what Paul is saying to us is, is he painted a picture that was bleak of our sin. And the ramifications in chapters 1 through 3 made it look hopeless for us. But look, now, but now, the shift in Scripture hinges upon these two marvelous words in verse 21. Paul gives us, gave us a glimpse, a brief glimpse. He introduced himself to the people in Rome. He said in, in chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, I'm Paul the Apostle, he says. I was called as an apostle. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and I've been set apart for the gospel of God. We learned who he was. And just before he gets into the whole idea of how condemned mankind is from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 18, he said gloriously in chapter 1, verse 17, giving us a hint, he says, for in it, in it meaning in the gospel, in other words, the words that I am going to preach to you, the good news that is coming your way, he says the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous person shall live by faith. He, is, he has given us a glimpse of the gospel's saving grace. But now, in verse 21, 
He says, apart from the law. What he is saying there is that the law is trying to maintain a standard so that we can come to God in and, on, in and of our own power. But he is saying, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been seen. It was witnessed by the law as well as by the prophets. Paul is declaring here in this one verse, 21, but now he is declaring that the righteousness that God gives to those who trust and believe in him is apart from our obedience to the law because Paul has clearly told us we can't keep the law. We are hopelessly lost in trying to stay without sin because we've learned in Hebrews, commit one sin and you commit them all. You are guilty of them all. And so you can't. Impossible to keep it. And so by that, Paul is meaning God's righteousness is not based on human achievement. It's not. It's nothing that we can do in and of our own power. I wrote down, God cannot accept imperfection. And the dilemma is clear. We cannot provide perfection. So we're caught. We're lost. We're caught. But Paul writes in verse 21, but now. We see God's plan in Scripture. It, it conforms to His standard of the law and the prophets. You see, God will not lower His standard. He can't do that. He cannot violate His own righteous demands. They were laid out in the Old Testament as well as the New through the law, this the written word of God, and through the prophets. You see, the, the, the Old Testament law, you might not know this, it had a twofold purpose. There was a moral part, but there was also a ceremonial part. Watch this now. The moral law was there to uncover sin, to let a person know that they were in sin. That was the moral law. The ceremonial law was given to temporarily cover up the sin that was uncovered. God's plan was to do both. Uncover sin and then, in the Old Testament, temporarily cover it up. Thus to uncover the uncovered sin would satisfy the righteousness of God. God's plan, I hope this hasn't confused, God's plan would not only make His righteousness scriptural, but it confirms what the old prophets, prophets of old foretold. Told about God. Told about His righteousness. I mean, He explained it clearly. And, and, and if you look with me, please, hold your place here. And, and, and please take a look in the Old Testament. Isaiah, one of the Old Testament prophets, the 53rd chapter. Now, if you go to the middle of your Bible, that would be the book of Psalms, more than likely. Turn to the right, as if you were going back to the New Testament. You'd go past Proverbs and uh, Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, and you'll get to Isaiah. Song of Solomon, and then comes Isaiah. And look at Isaiah chapter 53. Hold your place here in Romans. I'm going to read you a few verses. I want you to get the flavor of what Isaiah, the prophet of old, spoke of prophetically concerning the coming Messiah and the righteousness of God. In Isaiah chapter 53, let's just 
just start with the first, first verse and let's read through verse 12. It's worth reading. Listen. Isaiah writes, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now he's going to talk about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Says so he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor an appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hid their face and was despised, and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, Surely our grief he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Listen to verse 5. Listen to what Isaiah said. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. He was scourged. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Amazing. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. Let's jump down to verse 10. The Lord, it says in verse 10, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. When you jump ahead, if you go back to Romans chapter 3, I want to read to you out of one verse that Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, speaking now about this one who was prophesied back in the Old Testament Paul now speaks of him in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we will see that Jesus Christ, the one that was foretold of in Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament, is now our righteousness. That's what Isaiah was explaining and now Paul speaks of. Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says he, talking of God, made him, talking of Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become, watch this now, we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's all important to recognize that God is the one who provides our righteousness. We cannot work that out on our own. As Isaiah 64 tells us, our righteousness before God is like a filthy rag. 
It's of no value. We cannot work out our own righteousness on our own. It's beyond us as human beings. But always remember, what God requires, God always provides. What God requires, He always provides. And here, starting with Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but now is God's provision for a mankind that is totally depraved, has no chance to get with God. No chance to have peace with God. It's, this is the most glorious of all places. This is like all of a sudden you've been, you've been told you made the team. You're, you're on the ball club. And I tell you that because I can't tell you how many times I was in Vero Beach watching the plane take off and they were going back to play in the big leagues and I was stay, stayed there in the minor leagues. Phew, I hated watching that plane fly. I wanted to be on it so badly. And God says, you and I are on. We're on the team. Watch, watch, watch. This is great. So God provides His Son, Jesus Christ. He was, he was prophesied before in the Old Testament. He was witnessed by the law, the Word of God, and the prophets. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, the one that we talked, sung about today, then God's righteousness, which He requires, becomes ours. We become the righteousness of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, or through His Son, Jesus Christ. So what we see here in verse 21, 22, 3, and 4, is God keeps His plan. It is thoroughly scriptural according to His Word, the law, and according to the witnesses that God gave us in the Old Testament, the prophets. Now in verses 22 and 23, it is also suitable for every single person. This is so important. Romans 3.10, Paul told everyone that there is none of us who is righteous. Now we need the righteousness of God to stand before God. And he is saying that none of us, no not one, is righteous. Now, if that's true, and it is, what takes place after verse 21, but now, is totally amazing. It is a, a place in Scripture that, that ought to make you and me just set free in who we are in Christ. Now, hear this, folks. It is here where Christianity parts ways with all other religions that I know of and all cults that I've read about and studied. Because... They have devised that, that, that there is one common thread that runs through most religions and cults. And it is that each of them affirm one thing clearly. That man must work out on their own their salvation. Mankind must earn their right to be with God. They affirm that man has to do something. I have to do something to make God pleased with us. Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul is preaching here in verses 21, 2, 3, and 4 says that you and I can do nothing. There's nothing we can, there's nothing we can do. Salvation comes from God and it is through faith and faith alone. It is, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that none of us should boast. 
in God's gospel, the, the pure gospel that is called the good news, works that you and I do, do not result in us gaining salvation. We can't work our way there. No, in God's economy, the works that you and I do result from our being saved. It is a, it is a part of our life that we do simply because we fall in love with the Lord God, our Savior. So, Paul writes, who can get this salvation? Who's, who's available for salvation? And he writes in verse 22, for all those who believe, there's no distinction. Why is there no distinction? Because in verse 23 we are told, all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. God's plan is universal. In other words, it is for all mankind. Why? Because every person on the face of this good earth falls short of the glory of God. Every single person Paul has just taught us is a helpless, hopeless, useless sinner in desperate need of God's righteousness. And how do we get it? The righteousness, he says, is for everyone. But it only comes through belief, faith, and trust in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a little bad or a lot of bad, it doesn't matter to God. You still fall short of His righteousness and His glory. So what are we to do? Verse 24. God must therefore meet us in our present condition. Since sin is universal, since all of us have sinned and we have all been condemned, and we must do nothing, then because of nothing we can do, God must do it all. Watch. Salvation is based on a very wonderful principle. Verse 24. We are being justified. Now you've got to listen to this word. This word is, is, is marvelous. While I was studying this week, it came to my mind that I don't know how many years ago, it was, I was brand new in my salvation. So I was 20-some years ago. I was going to School of Theology in Long Beach, uh, Long Beach Brethren Church. And the teacher of the class of Romans was, was Harold Dunning, an old gentleman and his wife Marguerite, whom, for whatever reason, fell in love with me and Kay. And um, I guess he was my age then, and I was in my, I guess, in my 50s. And um, we just fell in love with this guy. And he taught the, the class of Romans. And I, I would give anything if I knew where my notes were, what he taught. No, I, I'd, I'd do more than that. I'd, I'd give anything if he was still alive and he could teach you this section of Scripture. Because he taught how beautiful it is to be trusting in Christ and how to be declared righteous and to be justified. He mentioned the word justified meant, you can break it down. If you want to remember what justified or justification means, it's, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. And therefore you receive the righteousness of God. Watch. Salvation is based on this wonderful principle. Verse 24. Being justified, just as if I'd never sinned, as a gift. So by 
faith, you have been saved through grace, and that not of yourself, or is it the other way around? But not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that none of us should boast. We have been justified as a gift by God's grace, His unmerited favor through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. This, these, there's four words in this verse that are just, uh, they jump off the page at you. Justified, gift, grace, redemption in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at the word justified because it's everything. It means everything to you and me as believers. The word justified means a legal as well as a formal acquittal from guilt. A legal and formal acquittal from from guilt. Just as if I'd never sinned. We receive this acquittal because Jesus Christ shed His blood for you and for me and for the world. When John the Baptist saw he was baptizing people in 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 the uh, he was baptizing people and he saw Jesus Christ coming in John chapter 1 verse 29 he says behold the lamb of god behold him who what takes away the sin of this world there's the one you want to look for they were all looking at John he says don't look at me i'm not i'm not worthy to carry a sandal there he is he's the one And so we receive justification just as if we've never sinned through the shedding of the blood and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's key. Now, here's the beauty of verse 24. Being justified, broken down in the Greek, is in the present continuous tense. Now, you know that I've studied. I have no idea what all of that would mean on my own. It is in the present continuous tense, which indicates you and I who have trusted in Christ are in a constant condition of being justified, of being just as if we've never sinned. That's why God can say when he when we come to him and we ask him for the forgiveness of our sin, he says, I'll take your sin and I'll separate it from you as far as what? The east is from the west. And then he says, and I will remember your sin no more. It is just as if you've never sinned. You come under justification. You have received in your heart of hearts the righteousness of my Son, Jesus Christ, because your righteousness is like a filthy rag to me. Whether you've done just a little wrong or a lot of wrong, it matters not to God. So he had to work out a plan, and his plan was his Son. Let me, let me try to tell you the difference between the word justified and forgiveness. It's a little story that I made up. So take it for what it's worth. This is sorry. Suppose someone wrote up a million dollars of credit on a store knowing that they couldn't pay it back. It would have been impossible for them to pay. So they find you out and they throw you in jail. But they're a very benevolent store. They forgive you your debt. That's forgiveness. You're not liable anymore. Because you have been forgiven of your debt. If the store desired, 
it could have pressed you for the money. That would have been justice. But they forgave you. You can go your way. You're free. Even though you're as guilty as can be, you are guilty but forgiven. Let's take another scenario, the same story. But now let's suppose that that store decided not to forgive you of your, your debt. Place you under trial. Now let's make the culprit of, for the sake of the story, a pretty young girl. And the owner of the store is a good-looking young man. And while waiting for the trial, he keeps seeing her walk into the courtroom and he falls madly in love with her. He asks her to marry him and she says yes and they get married. And he then personally undertook her account, paid back to the store the money in full. There would now be absolutely no legal claim against her. Her case wouldn't even have to go to trial, but if it did, she has the right to plead not guilty. Not not forgiven, but not forgiven, I mean, but not guilty. The, the bill has been paid in full. The court would say, yeah, yeah, she's justified, justified in pleading not guilty. Her case has to be dismissed. There is, there, is no, there is no count against her. It's been paid in full. Listen, if a person is to be forgiven, a person must hope for mercy. When I go to God, oftentimes I just ask Him, Father, have mercy on me. Just have mercy on me. But if a person is to be justified, just as if I never sinned, they must prove to the opposition that they have no case against them. In salvation, now let's get back to Scripture. In salvation, both forgiveness and justification enter into the truth of God's Word. It's amazing. Please listen to this. Paul is teaching us here in verse 24 that due to Jesus Christ, the believer in Christ has been declared both forgiven and justified before God. And why? Because Jesus Christ has paid it all. Therefore, you are now no longer guilty. It is just as if you'd never sinned. You have been justified before God. And you have the righteousness of Christ in you. There's no more legal ground against you. you the charges against you are, are, are no longer valid. You have perfect standing before God. That's what this is saying in verses 21, 2, 3, and 4. That's why this is the highest of ground. You are seen now as perfect in God's sight because He doesn't see you. He sees His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and Satan has no claim against you unless, and I fight this battle, unless you let him. Unless you give Satan the right to condemn you. I fight this battle often in my own life. You see, God sees you and me as not guilty. But the question is, how do we see ourselves? If I had one desire for all of us in this church, 
it would be to set us so free, so assured of our salvation and who we are in Christ, that we would walk out of these doors and we would be so alive for Jesus Christ that nothing, no one could stop us because we have been justified. We have been declared righteous. You see, God sees you and me as not guilty. You and I have been justified before God. We've been freed, forgiven of all guilt and shame. You know, it's interesting. In my scenario, I didn't think about it so much. But, you know, we are called as the church the bride of Christ. When I first started this, telling the story to myself, trying to figure out the difference between justified and, 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 and forgiven, and then, interestingly, I said, well, there's a woman. This guy falls in love with her. He pays the debt. We are called the bride of Christ. That's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. In verse 24, as we close, it says that our Lord God gives us all of this as a gift. Note, verse 24, being justified just as if I had never sinned as a gift. In other words, you cannot earn it. In other words, you cannot work your way to get it. Listen now, and you cannot get any credit for it. It is simply a gift from God to you. It is by His grace, which is God's unmerited favor, something you get that you do not deserve. You know what we deserve? Well, we deserve His wrath. That's what Paul was saying in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because none of us, he says, is righteous. But what do we get? Through Jesus Christ, we get his grace. We get unmerited favor. We get his unconditional love. We have been forgiven, justified. We have been declared righteous before God. Forever seen by God as not guilty. And as a gift, can't earn it. We get it because of God's grace, pure and thoroughly. We get it because of His unmerited love and favor towards us. I wrote these words down, and I wanted you to think about them as you leave here. We're going to have Dan come and speak to us in a moment. These words I wrote down is, tell me now. Tell me. Tell me after you've heard this. How much do you love the Lord? How much do you love Him? It, to me, it's, it's unbelievable how much I ought to try to live my life at least paying back a portion of that love that He has given to me. Calling me justified, calling me declared righteous, telling me I'm a child of His. How much do you love Him? I pray that when you walk out of these doors that, that you'll have a sense of the assurance of who you are in Christ. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what God has done for you. Father in heaven above, um, I want to thank you for who you are and just a chance to come to you and pray. And I pray you'll, you'll bless Dan. I I didn't get a chance to tell him after the first service, but I, I admire him so. 
Um, um, so I, I pray you will bless us all. Uh, and I want to thank you, Father, for your kindness towards us. And uh, pray that we would uh, be a faithful church to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.